0: Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 114th episode of the Truth Island podcast. In the book, Leaders Eat Last by Simon S- Sinek, we are taken back to a time in America when presidents apologized, captains went down with their ships, and CEOs resigned when faced with scandal or underperformance. However, in the last 40 years, America couldn't be any more different. If you haven't noticed, we are increasingly living in a time of private jets, golden parachutes, gated communities, and a legal system which seeks to protect those who can hire the best possible representation. Thinking to our historical past, images of George Washington come to mind, freezing in the cold right alongside his troops at Valley Forge, or Ulysses S. Grant leading the Union Army to victory. We can at least acknowledge that many of our leaders from the past had some hair in the game, even if they weren't exposed to the same level of danger as an average private. However, as of late, more and more of our elected officials seem to be sheltered from a lot of the dangers and struggles that face ordinary Americans, whether it be natural disasters, stagnant wages, homelessness, or inadequate education. It's as if in just one generation a complete class of leaders have gone as being the ones with the most to lose to almost nothing to lose. This dichotomy presents the unique question of, is it truly possible for someone to care about something or someone when the outcome has absolutely no bearing on their life? Joining me to help answer this question, I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, I'd be lying if I didn't contemplate the direct consequences or rewards of my behavior when making a decision. Do you think our elected officials are any different?
1: You're asking me if there's honor in our elected officials.
0: (laughs) I mean, I I, like we, we all make decisions in this world. Right. And think about how that's going to affect other people. And we also think about how it will affect us. I would be, you know, I'm not, I'm not here on the show, pretending as if I'm a complete altruist, like, oh, I will just quietly starve to death here in this corner, feast every, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not asking anyone to be like that. What I am saying, though, is if there, if there is that, that disconnect, like if they, if they, if they don't really suffer any of those consequences at all, do you think it's possible that they've completely removed any empathy for the plight of others if, if those if that suffering has no way of affecting them?
1: I think that they put less emphasis on empathy. Absolutely. I think that um, empathy in a way has become somewhat weaponized. It's been a little skewed into into like an objective-based argument, which is a highly unfortunate. A highly unfortunate uh, repercussion of, I think, just the amount of people we have in the world, where the the burden of feeling empathetic towards every single person's situation, is almost Christ-like, and it's and it's and uh, it's effort, uh, almost, to become a Buddha.
0: You know, I thought this was going to be a topic on leadership, but I think it's actually going to turn into a topic on empathy, which I think is totally cool. And I, you know, just hearing what you said about like the Buddha and experiences, one group of people that has really changed my mind on the world is people who have actually served in the Peace Corps. I don't know if you've known anyone who's actually gone to the Peace Corps. So the Peace Corps is a, you know, typically you graduate from college and then they send you to like a remote area in Africa or, a, a, you know, an under, underdeveloped country and you work as a teacher there. It's kind of like a volunteer program where they send you to, Really remote places in the world. I knew a, uh, a guy who went all the way to Cambodia, and what that actually does is, when you're in the Peace Corps, it actually changes the way that you view the world. Because we all we all pick up the Wall Street Journal, we all pick up the Times, and we'll read like, you know, people in this remote village are starving to death, or people in here are going through a civil war. And we don't actually know what that means because we've never seen it. We have no faces, we have no attachment to any of this. So we just read these things and okay, I'm not saying that we're like, we're not callous and just say whatever. But the people that go to the Peace Corps, when they read these things, they have an emotional attachment to it because they've actually seen some of those faces. There's probably a name that they could drop to that region, uh, you know, in that part of the world. And I think what's happening is that our politicians have no empathy, not necessarily. I mean, sure, maybe some of them are complete narcissists. Fair enough. But I think they don't actually have enough encounters with ordinary Americans to actually have a face or have that kind of attachment to us. How how does that theory sound to you?
1: I'd agree with you that empathy is really only shared by experiencing other people's perceptions and point of view and that is a lot easier to do when you're in a situation such as the Peace Corps. We were actually there present in the the upside down of your known world and your known experience. But I do think that leadership sometimes is seeing beyond that and empathy is an integral part to becoming, a court, to becoming a good leader but I don't think it covers all the bases what a good leader needs to be. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can be a good leader without empathy. I think empathy is just a foundational brick laid in the house of your leadership. And a house divided will not stand. And a house would be divided without empathy as a core tenant to your approach towards humanity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I did something kind of similar to the Peace Corps, so I can relate um, on a much shorter timeline to something like that. I, at seventeen, I. I, I was allowed to go a lot earlier than most to Africa to essentially preach, preach for 30 days. And, you know, I lived with multiple families by myself and traveled to different villages and handed out medical supplies. And, you know, we even stopped by this one hospital once and a lady was in surgery and left surgery with blood on her hands to walk up to us to say hello. She was cutting someone up. <laughs> so, you know, like going overseas and doing the whole Peace Corps element uh, is a great way for Americans, especially, to wake up to the realities of life and what empathy really requires. Like, how much should that really go into decision making? I mean, this is going to be, I think, a controversial argument. Because if you're if you're leading this country, Mr. Azeroth, if you have... How many people are in this country? 150 million, maybe? Is that too high? Yeah, 350 million or so. Okay, so 350 million, you say. So 350 million people. Do you have the capacity as a human being to empathize with every single situation to the point where every choice you make has to be considered, every single dimension has to be considered with the equal amount of empathy? Like, is mm. that really something fair to ask of another human being?
0: Before I answer that question, I want to ask you some questions. First off, you're extremely modest sure. for, you know, we've been doing like, what, 12, 14 episodes of have recorded, and now you're just telling me about Africa. So <laughs> you're, a very, <laughs> you're a very modest guy. I want to just focus on that. Even though you were just there for 30 days, I want to just ask you point blank, after sure. when you came back from Africa, and then maybe you don't remember offhand, but maybe- like a few months later, you read something about Africa in the newspaper. Did your perception change? Like, like, was there like a pre-Alexander and like, you know, like, oh man, that's sad before Africa. But then when you read it afterwards, you're like, whoa, I, I, I have a face now. And I take that, I I remember this, I have this visualization of this woman covered in blood or something. Did that change your, the way that you read that news article when you actually had a visual imagery of that?
1: Without a doubt, without a doubt. I, I remember coming back and I nearly died twice on this trip. There were two occasions that I nearly died. Um, one of them, I still have photographic evidence of, and I keep that close to my heart when I feel that there's a particular situation that I need to listen to myself on. If I don't, it could be the difference, which was you know, what happened in this instance. But I remember getting back and trying to process that, trying to process the idea of being on the brink of survival ability, to be able to, have water, to come home to my American home. I remember it was uh, my parents put on um, a movie, which is like our ritual with Nick Cage. It was called The God of War. And it was about a uh, arms dealer who sold arms to Africans. I couldn't watch it. I lasted 20 minutes. And I was so enraged and so defensive, not even for myself, but I felt that me contributing my attention to whatever form of media, be it a movie or an article like you're saying that perpetuates this idea of what that area is and what that area stands for. And if it's not in the light that I experienced firsthand, I would get enraged and enraged. I remember screaming at the TV and people were looking at me like I was acting crazy. And, you know, maybe I was totally irrational, but it wasn't rational to me the difference between how they live and how we live and how little we and just how much we take that for granted
0: you know it's it's interesting that you say this because like there's also this effect of like for example when real doctors watch the show er i heard that they became outraged like that's not accurate a doctor would never you know and i i think that the more broad our experiences are, the more empathy that we actually generate because everything every everything that we read about, everything that we hear about secondhand is very abstract. you know like if you if you had watched that movie, before you visited Africa, it would have just been an abstraction. It would have been like math equations of like, okay, this is a far, this is far away, thousands of miles away. This is what goes on there. You know, the people there don't really mind that this is happening. It would have just been a mathematical abstraction. But then once you actually had the experience of physically being there, that abstract, it's no longer an abstraction. It's something real. The way that I, to to kind of connect the dots here, if we look at our leaders of the past, like a Washington, a uh, Ulysses Grant, Eisenhower, okay, were they necessarily in the most dangerous spots in these conflicts? No. But they had that interaction with privates. They had those interactions with regular foot soldiers, with regular people. I'm sure that Eisenhower knew several people that probably lost their lives, you know, during D-Day. I'm sure he met them. I'm sure Eisenhower looked the, you know, looked in the eyes of somebody who died on D-Day and, and like, that's something real. And yeah. I think that that fundamentally makes you a more empathetic person and therefore makes you a better leader. And then this is kind of where, you know, I, I think there is, we, we could just say, oh, these people are narcissists. They have no empathy. And we could just say that, offhand and there might there might very well be some truth in that. but I also think that we need to start generating experiences in this world before we actually turn over the keys of leadership to anyone, there needs to be like an like what I call like an empathetic trail that they must walk build up those experiences.
1: I think that's beautifully said. I think a leader is in is a mosaic of different personality traits and, and abilities. And one of them certainly is being empathetic, but also, but also in an equal manner, it's also the ability to turn off your empathy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you need to have the capacity of empathy in order to understand. But in order to lead, you can't let your capacity to feel get in the way of your choices or the nation's capacity to feel to get in the way of choices. And I don't think there has been a better representation of that than Nelson Mandela, Mm -hmm. flat out, who struck a balance after the apartheid, after spending 26 years in a, what, six by seven cell, something like that, 26 years working as essentially a slave, to leave that area, to step into office, to have the command of both oneself and the command of two halves of a very angry populace, to strike that balance is just, that is leadership. So empathy could only get him so far because if he empathized only with the black experiences, being a man put into prison for 26 years, he wouldn't have unified.
0: I give that guy a lot of credit. If they had thrown me in a cell for 20, you know, 30 years, you know, I would have been like, I, I would have been like to hell with you people. I'm, that's, that's it. <laughs> so I give him a lot of credit for being able to kind of wear both hats, especially after what uh, he experienced. But maybe, maybe along the empathetic trail, you want to have experiences that juxtapose with one another. So maybe you want to spend a few years living in a very like poor rural area or in a developing nation. But then you also want to spend some time with, you know, powerful people and rich people you want. You want to have like a semblance of multiple angles, multiple perspectives. I think I think the wisest leader has the most data points of experiences in when they when they mm-hmm. make a decision. And maybe maybe Nelson Mandela had that. Maybe maybe he kind of brushed elbows with enough uh rich, powerful people in South Africa and said, all right, you know what? They're not all that bad. Or you know, I I kind of see the um economic utility in having this factory over here or something. So it doesn't have to be just one specific journey. I think having as many experiences as possible, what does a, a poor person live like? What does a middle, I mean, it's funny saying middle-class, how many middle-class people do we have left anymore? Well, you know, what does a middle-class person live like? What does a wealthy person live like? And then collecting all of these data points, I think that can actually make you a great leader because now you're actually seeing the world through the vantage point of so many different eyes.
1: For sure. and that. You know is a great argument for the analytical portion of a good leader there's another quality that i feel like we're not touching upon here which is the ability to lift the living experience of a human being and place it gently into the oceans of what it's like to live with a degree of poetry beyond your own time frame there is a way that great leaders shepherd the masses into this higher frequency that is beyond their own time. They're not even going to encapsulate the reward. It's not even about that. It's about the seven generations after. It's generations after. What was what was Lincoln's famous quote? This fighting for the Emancipation Proclamation, um, and I might misquote him here, so forgive me, is about the untold generations to come. It's not even about now. Mm -hmm. And leaders like George Washington, Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln, everyone lifted up their nation and placed them into a frequency that had poetry, that had meaning, and it had longevity beyond their own minuscule life. That is a different degree of leadership that no data points can give you. What that is, is it's, it's an alignment. It's basically spiritual chiropractic. (laughs) right it's like like you got to realign the spine and then add the fleshy elements you got to realign the values you got to make sure everything's in tow you know the ergonomics of your movement are going to be easier because everyone's on the same page
0: i love spiritual alignment man you're a true poet actually i love that uh spiritual chiropractic (laughs) beautiful um maybe you know and and maybe maybe we can kind of blend our two theories here together do you think it's possible that maybe having the multiple data points like seeing this is how uh, a poor person lives this is how an imprisoned person lives this is how a wealthy plutocrat lives maybe having the multiple data points allows you to predict what the future will look like better so maybe when you have all of this exposure you're able to forecast of like okay these people are going to react like this when that happens and these rich people are going to do this and these you know, this, these people, you know, working in the factory are going to act that way. So maybe the multiple data points give you a better ability. I'm not, I'm not being as poetic as you are, but I'm, I'm from a scientific perspective, maybe just multiple experiences allow you to make better predictions.
1: Hands down. I mean, hands down, but it's also, what's the capacity of a human being to soak up experience? Like what's, what's the total value of experience that could be had? Like how much wind can you fill that sail with? Um mm. that's down to the person, right? Like you could put a shallow-minded, egocentric p- psychopath into a hospital filled with kids with cancer and he's going to leave wanting to still sell his stocks. Right? He's still going to want to leave to like a continuous ponzi scheme. There's there's an there's an unspoken quality here that can't be found on paper. But you know me, I'm I'm son of a scientist. So science is a great way to place a range like a parent like parentheses around a situation, it's an important form of structure. It's important. It's, it's it's form because at the end of the day, it's still people running these things. It's still people making the changes. And at the end of the day, you know you 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 can't have anything in nature without some sort of structural form. That's mm. one of the reasons why I love Greek architecture, right? Because it is just as empty. As it is structure, it's just as open as it is structure. They found the balance between what is required to keep it standing, and and what is already there and apparent that doesn't need to be manipulated even in the littlest bit. It's the perfect Dionysian meets Apollonian point of view.
0: Now I love that you raising a really great question. It's it's a nature versus nurture question here because you could put an individual on quote unquote the empathetic right. trail but they still might be extremely cold hearted and callous. They might be like you just said, they might see people in a cancer ward and it doesn't phase them. They could see prisoners in the jail. And some of these politicians do, some kind of fake trail where they visit downtrodden communities, but they kind of do it as a resume builder, right? There's plenty of people who volunteer and work somewhere for a year, or they work in a in a downtrodden public school, and they put it on their resume, and they just use that to leapfrog to the next thing, and they don't actually soak up those experiences. I think a good filtering system that we can kind of put into place here is some sort of reflection. And I actually don't I don't know how we could quantify this. I don't know how we could measure this. But I think that this to, to kind of weed out the narcissists who are just going through the empathetic trail as a, as a resume builder, I think asking people to reflect on their experiences and then following their behavior and saying, Well, was does it look like this person was? changed by their time, you know, spent in Africa? Was it was their experience changed working in that public school? Was their time changed working in that hospital? And I think those could be kind of um, safeguards to make sure that we don't have narcissists just traveling down the empathetic trail as a resume builder.
1: 100%. And I just want to be clear, I don't believe that our, you know, example, psychopath guy, he wouldn't eventually change. You know, I do believe in the wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? (laughs) I do believe that, like, you have enough of the experience on the empathetic trail, you're going to wake up and find that you've been living as a miser. I do believe that will happen eventually. The difference is, is that politicians use it to exploit conversational points about just the level of character and the divinity of them as your leader. There is that whole nature versus nurture for sure. But we can't, it's not something that can be forced upon. And this is, this is exactly the line of where I disagree with religion because it's the moment where we try to curate a guideline that this funny conversation starts. You're right. We need to have people reflect on this. Therefore every day or once a week we'll meet in a predetermined location and we'll make sure that that location is treated with the utmost respect Mm -hmm. that way all of the psychological reinforcement will be there that this is an important place that the methodology that we are going to uphold and codify is the most important thing for you to do as a human being. That way you'll have a means of reflection and you know what if you did something that you didn't like maybe you should have someone you can talk to. That yeah. way when you vocalize it you're able to reflect on it. Like we're defining a type of religion and the difficulty of this is is that this bringing humanity in that way is popping the bubble of an entirely new firmament, which is yeah. putting it down to practice. Like it has to become, it has to generate from within.
0: Now, one thing I will say, and you know, you might disagree with me on this, but I actually have the opinion that tears are very cheap. Uh, that's my, like I, because I've heard, I've seen a lot of people in this world starts crying and say, the children, and then I saw that. But I don't, I don't, I see past the tears. And I'm like, what was your behavior after you saw that? How have you changed as a person? And I think we have a lot of politicians that know how to work up the tears and be like, and then I was there and i will and they'll write things like, I'll never forget seeing blah blah blah. But I'm like, wait a minute, you've your if we look at your your voting record, it looks like you've totally forgotten all that stuff that you saw growing up as a kid or whatever. So I, I think in that reflection process, we also, you know, it's not just what you say and the tears that you produce. We also have to be looking at the uh, the measurable and observable things, that actions that you took that actually demonstrate change.
1: I think you highlighted such a genius point, which is the exploitation of what empathy is supposed to mean to you has been just absolutely ruined by the past 20 years. I mean, classic example, all this cancel culture. I mean, like, I'm so sick of all this crap. Like, and Hollywood's the worst with it. And it's a shame because it's my industry. So it's like, you know, I get disgusted by actors, actors, and actresses that repeatedly commoditize this whole victimization. And what it does is that it hurts the little guy. Yeah. It hurts the person who is actually going through struggles because the encumbrance of having to keep all of these empathetic drivers, you know, on your mind all day. It's so exhausting for the normal person who has real life struggles, who isn't crying about how Josh Whedon, you know, treated you on set when you literally did like 15 projects with the man over the span (laughs) of like 22 years.
0: Yeah. Right. So,
1: you know, it's like, uh, I don't, I, it it really, honestly, of all the things that gets me upset, I think that really pisses me off because I see these experiences I had in Africa where you see a child in a dark corner of a school with maybe two pieces of chalk who's just covered in dust, wearing sports caps, t-shirts of failed Super Bowl campaigns, you know, failed you know, leftover clothing for capitalists' failures and excess. They're they're tossed to it. They're thrown it as a means of keeping themselves warm. And we're over here bitching about all this stuff.
0: Yeah,
1: Empathy is supposed to be the very thing, the intangible that connects human beings together. And that is the most basic way we've survived. The most basic way is I have a fire, you're cold. I feel bad enough for you. Why don't you come over and sit near the fire? Yeah, it started there.
0: Yes. Now this I love. Okay. So I think, part of the problem is that we actually need to retrain people into recognizing what empathy actually is. Because I, I I think that our reptilian minds are conditioned to think that Empathy must be the crying person, the crying person who's who's lamenting and making victim videos and has tears and, you know, um, their mascara or whatever is falling down their face like we've been, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, we see that as empathy, but and if you don't do that behavior, we actually think that you're cold hearted we need to actually train people to psychologically realize that just because someone's not crying or isn't very emotional that person that that person has the cold stoic face might actually be more empathetic than the person bursting into tears because the person with the cold sto- stoic face might be the dude who's like You know what, I'm gonna move away from the fire right now and I'm gonna let you sit by the fire for an hour and then we'll switch or something. Right? The cold stoic face actually has a game plan to keep you guys alive. Whereas the person that's like completely lost in emotional trauma, they might be the one hoarding the fireplace all to themselves or hoarding the last piece of bread for themselves. So I think we need to really start training humans to start recognizing genuine empathy from fake empathy.
1: Yeah, and it comes down to you know what kind of principles are being upheld. And You know, I don't know if there's any solution to it Mm. besides an individual educating themselves, you know, an individual getting red pilled into how specific (laughs) emotions can totally torment a a situation into something you thought was completely different. And you're left confused and misunderstood. You're like, well, so-and-so said this so emphatically and emotionally that they must care yeah that's not the way the world works and you know it's it's a it's a dark dark lesson for every young woman every young man no one feels things like you feel Mm -hmm. you know that's a heavy thing to say that doesn't mean there's no place for how you feel about things but that doesn't mean that every place should have your feelings right you know it's a it's a time and a place and honestly in my opinion Of all the times that I've been grossly manipulated by employers or business hounds or anything, right? Bad relationships. Emotion has been the number one tool used to manipulate me as a person.
0: Yes. Because I'm
1: empathetic. And so the beauty of stoicism, it's not about ignoring the empathy. This is why I try my best to be a stoic. I'm probably the worst stoic you've ever met. I just, you know, it's the total opposite of who I am naturally wired you, as a, as a Stoic, you don't turn away from looking the emotion in the eye. The whole point is that you've been there. You've done that. You understand
0: sure. yet
1: you decide right yet. You bring it down to a single point of rationality where you say, how does this serve me? what is the practic- what is the practical aspect of this can i fit a square peg in a round hole no the world is different than that right like you can't just be on emotion and people have to learn that and you know it really starts with i think social media which is the worst with this right
0: yeah.
1: you know i'm just disgusted with that it's just all a means of gaslighting and manipulation of people's emotions and it's not okay, you know, it's really not okay because it's incredibly dark. It's incredibly dark and also it's a it's a privilege, right? Like we're privileged mm-hmm. to have the time for this. Can you imagine, I remember seeing this, let me tell you the story about Africa. Sure. I remember we, we drove in this vehicle called the Matatu, which was basically a van that had a top on, on the, like a T-top that you could lift up. So when you stand, you could shoot photographs on right. the safety of a hood right? But you're standing in the Matatu to take photographs on a safari to tell you best truck I've ever been in my life. This thing crushed any situation. It was perfect. We were driving this Matatu for easily 45, 30 minutes. Haven't seen anything, anything. And you just see this woman carrying, I don't know how many pounds of water on her head to to provide water for her family. She doesn't have time for your emotions. <laughs> like, do you know how American that is? Right,
0: right, right.
1: And, and, and you know, to put it into like a, an artistic pretext in terms of the timeline, your real visceral emotions didn't matter until Marlon Brando came. <laughs> there was an entire era before where no one actually cared how you felt.
0: Yeah. i i I think i think i I think you've struck it right here is that emotions are extreme they're first off they're an affordance of luxury and time right and they're also extremely cheap typing your emotions out on facebook is really 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 cheap it it, it just you, you all you need is an internet connection and some fingers and it doesn't cost you anything whereas Actually, actually, like volunteering your time, actually putting effort into benefiting, and I don't—you don't even have to be like the uh, the most altruistic person that's traveling to the four far corners of the earth to do this. Just the way you treat your family, the way that you treat the people closest to you, is, is are all examples of like your degree of empathy. And, and I, I, I like exactly <clears throat> what you said because even though that woman that you encountered in Africa was carrying all that water, even though she was not emotional or anything, she's feeding an entire village or her entire family with that water. So right off the bat, that's a lot of empathy. Water that she is transporting is really going to give something, you know, something for people to drink. You can't drink people's tears, okay? You cannot drink tears. You know, tears are only going to get you so far. So I, I think that we need to realize like when people demonstrate empathy through crying or through their keyboard, we have to have that we have to call that stuff out and be like that's cheap empathy that's your fingers that's your little stubby digits pushing buttons and expressing empathy. you know you know who's made like a real resurgence in the past like few years uh, Nikolai Tesla and yes. He, he used to have a really bad rap as being antisocial, like, oh, my God, this guy was a recluse. He hated people. He lived with just his assistant. He didn't, you know, uh, have sex, you know, and we talked about this before. <laughs> When you really think about it, the man invented all sorts of different currents and, and, and things that basically pioneered our electrical system and did it right. for no profit at all. No, no, right. profit, no profit at all. And it's like, did the guy shed tears and do this and have like a PR campaign? No, he quietly gave us technology that revolutionized the 20th century and quietly died and disappeared. That's real empathy. That's real empathy where you sacrifice yourself. For the betterment of of mankind. And it's not done with tears and like a thousand and one commercials. It's done, you know, in complete seclusion and done completely without actually asking for anything in return. That's the kind of behavior, and those are the kind of case studies that we need to really start zooming in. Okay. This person appears stoic and pretty cold on the face, but damn, did they achieve quite a bit?
1: Wow. Well said. Yeah. Nikolai Tesla, he's such a gross example of that. And what's interesting is that once again, that's someone being exploited for social reasons, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, he's inventing things that the government is trying very hard for him to rip down that would quite literally put electricity in every single person's home. Sure. I I, th- I could be misquoting this, but I'm pretty sure he also built a radio tower so large, right? On his property, he was like constructing, it was one of his master projects that would just that would just create energy for the entire world.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: people yeah. are worried about him, like not going to the, the, whatever, you know, social clubs <laughs> that they had back then. Like what, is, you know, no, they no, didn't no. go to the bar to go watch boxing and like chew on cigars and like, you know, let loose Greyhounds <laughs> while they suck down their Sazeracs. Like what did they do back then? <laughs> but,
0: no, <this> is exa- <laughs> no, But th- this is exactly what is going on today where it's like we don't actually care about the person rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work we care about the person who we like the most or the person who has uh the most so who's mo- the most socially gregarious and the most socially friendly and appeasing to us but what we don't realize is that 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 extroverted social person deep down inside may not be a nice person they may actually be i'm not saying it i'm not just saying I don't know I'm, about that but i'm not, I'm, not, I'm not generalizing and saying that all social people right. are okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not I'm not generalizing. Wolfing sheep's clothing. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying that some of them are doing just that. They 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 know how to play all the social games. They are like, hey fellas, I'll meet you there at the uh at the um the ox club or whatever and we'll smoke some you know cigars and whatever. But deep down inside That's what they do. Yeah, right. They're not they're not really bringing any value and any and they don't have genuine empathy for the world around them. They're good at playing the social game when they need to as a political means. And I think we need to start detecting this. We need to start sniffing it out. And I I hope in the years to come, both with philosophy and science, we start coming up with some reliable metrics of like, how can we tell if someone is empathetic? And if they are empathetic, can they make a good leader? Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. This concludes the 114th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.